0: Welcome to my studio. I'm um, sitting here this Saturday morning, looking at my work with somebody is doing construction in my neighborhood, <laughs> and I'm going to be reading this, I don't know if I'll be adding music to this one or not, I'm going to close my windows. I've had my windows open all summer long, I guess it's time, it's October, and... I haven't had to turn the heat on yet here, but it is more chilly than normal. Close this window as well. So the front studio space is now closed up for the coming winter, I suppose. I'm not sure I'll be opening those windows again. Actually probably will if I have to air the space out with the oil Painting Smell? I am reading a book, of course all of you know if you're following this, Night Studio Memoir of Philip Guston by Musa Mayer and Musa is his daughter but the mother Philip's wife was also named Musa, her mother and I've been contemplating since we're just about we're, we're a little more than halfway through this book. have been contemplating trying to go back and recap where I am, or what I've learned in the process of reading this out loud. And then I thought, no, nobody needs to hear that. <laughs> so um, I'll just sum it up with saying I'm going to begin chapter 7 today, and about painter's forms. That's the name of the title. And as I do that, I look around my own studio space and think about how it how it is to have to decompartmentalize, I guess is the word. Is that the right word? Compartmentalize maybe my work because I'm still moving out into the the academic world, into the public school district I work for, and this last week has been one of those grueling weeks where I accepted a, a longer job term job for a week while one of his math teachers had to go attend to some family business in Japan. and so they had a whole week worth of work for her classes and I went ahead and accepted the jobs and uh, knowing that it was going to be challenging because it was at a continuation school and uh, this is part of the I guess I, I don't know I sometimes feel like I have a dual personality at times even though I'm not I mean I'm I bring myself to the students with my same artist hat on as a teacher as a as a teaching artist, as a teaching person in general, and I had to describe that a little bit to them because there was a lot of conflict in the beginning when I worked walked into that classroom of course that you know I'm not their normal teacher and These are folks that are, uh, I think, pretty upset when change happens in their life. Although they've had so much change in their life, I think this is a group of kids. Well, actually, there's five classes per day that I taught. So a total of about 50-something, 60 kids. or More than that, I guess. Most of them had at least 15 students per class anyway it doesn't really matter how many people i i went i was in contact with that this last week but it just reminded me of the at-risk status of so many folks in our world still some that don't have parents some that are in group homes some that are just out of jail or juvenile hall as they call it here if you're underage, um, some that had maybe skipped high school or left high school and are coming back trying to make up classes to get you know, their their high school diplomas. And most of them were junior and seniors in high school, so 11th and 12th grade. I think I had one 10th grader But overall, it was challenging because none of them wanted to be there, and uh, I had to make a classroom environment that was going to somehow keep their attention for, I told them up front I was going to be there a week, you know, and I was hoping to build some trust that way, And for the most part, it was a good experience. There were some ups and downs. Um, Yeah, so I'm sitting here today with that experience behind me, looking at my studio space that have sort of went by the wayside this week. Paintings are still here. They're sort of like laundry and dishes, you know. Whatever you don't finish, they're still here for you the next time. book is still here, ready to be finished. The book I've been reading. aloud, Night studio. And you know, when I work this kind of week like I have, I really don't have the energy when I come home to come in in a creative space and paint. And this is my dilemma as a painter when I have to make... Other money to survive is, you know, switching gears and putting my creative hat back on. So I try to maneuver through the day with sketching or um, reading about some other re- artists or, yeah, so that's where I am. That's where I am today, about midway in this. Book and I really like to finish this book this weekend. I really would like to just hone in on it and complete it because I I really want to see what the end of it says. <laughs> I don't want to belabor it any longer. I want to move on to the next one. There's like another book I want to read about Emily Carr, which I picked up in Vancouver this summer. Her her biography. She wrote it herself. Autobiography. Um, I want to paint. I want to get myself back into the mode of painting on a daily basis again. I've missed that. Really, really missed it. I look around and these play- these old paintings are like friends of mine that need to be um, moved from this stage they're in to a new a new a new place. And so I look at this Philip Guston his life of working through the eyes of his daughter. Hi, Maggie. Always make your presence known. Hello. Yes. Um, And there's so much I relate to with him, even as a full-time artist, even though I, I I am a full-time artist, but I also have to go and do other work. So, I don't know exactly how I'm trying to say this. I guess I'm trying to weave my life back into this book and reflect on what I've gone through in reading it. A myriad of things of recognition of myself as a working artist you know, and the difficulties that is, that presents, I guess. And then also seeing it from a point of view of a family member. And in my situation, I don't really have that point of view. I don't have anybody in my family that's actually responding to my work. Um, Yeah. I didn't really start painting full time until my kids were, well, I guess my my youngest was young, but it was more my teenage uh my teen, my young, oldest was a teenager and moving into graduation of high school and on to his own college years. So it's just a quandary at times of how to balance it all and I guess that's what I'm when I'm seeing when I read this book aloud I'm I'm hearing the daughter reflect about her own issues with her father's painting career and how she observed her mother, and how she was, of course, it was written back in the time of when women were becoming more feminist and moving out into their own, and so lots of different points of views in here, which is what always makes books interesting to me. I hope you can hear me. I'm flutzing around with the book here. So that will be my first, that will be my midway summary of where I am in this book. Instead of a whole cast, I'm going to add it to the top of this chapter. And I know that each day is a new day, you know, and we just do what we can do, working as artists in this world. Forms chapter 7 begins with a quote no revolution no heresy is comfortable and easy because it is a leap it is a rupture of the smooth evolutionary curve and a rupture is a wound a pain but it is a necessary wound and this is by Eugenie Zamiathan Zamyat, Zamyatin, um, Zamyatin. It's a French... Uh, French, sorry. It's a Russian poet or novelist, I believe. And it's spelled E-V-G-E-N-Y is the Russian spelling for Eugene, which is the anglicized version. So, and it begins. The chapter begins. There's something ridiculous and miserly in the myth we inherit from abstract art, my father had written as early as 1960. That painting is autonomous, pure, sorry, that painting is autonomous, pure, and for itself, and therefore we habitually define its ingredients and define its limits. But painting is impure, it is the adjustment of impurities which forces painting's continuity. We are image makers and image-ridden." That's a quote from, quote from Philip Guston. By 1966, when my parents abandoned the New York studio and apartment for a permanent move to Woodstock, my father stopped painting altogether. He did scores of charcoal and brush drawings at Difficult Winter in Florida. Some of them were abstract and gestural, others were clearly figurative, but deceptively simple. I remember days of doing pure drawings, he told Dora Ashton later, immediately following by days of doing the other, drawings of objects. It wasn't a transition in the way it was. It wasn't a transition in the way it was in 1948, when one feeling was fading away and a new one had not yet been born. It was two equally powerful impulses at loggerheads. That's all in italicized text. It was two equally powerful impulses at loggerheads. I sometimes, excuse me, this is an aside, I sometimes feel like that in my painting. I basically paint abstract and then figurative, and sometimes abstract, figurative together. But they're two equally powerful impulses, definitely. I would one day tack up in the house a bunch of pure drawings, feel good about them, think that I could live with them, and that night go out to the studio to the drawings of objects, books shoes buildings hands feeling relief and a strong need to and a strong need to cope with tangible things i would denounce the pure drawings as too thin and exposed too much quote unquote art not enough nourishment and as an impossible direction with no future i have to say one more thing about that you know when i'm in my painting and sometimes the underpainting feels like it could be a finished piece and I hear my professor's voice move on to the next painting she used to tell me that you don't have to put everything into the first you don't have to put everything into each painting and I sometimes forget to hear that or to take note of it and merely u- utilize that um, suggestion by her because sometimes those raw, pure paintings or drawings are finished works, you know they really are, you don't have to have you know, an inch thick of paint, layering and scraping off and putting on and scraping off but there's something too about that process of layering and pushing the paint and scraping it off and pulling it on and you know that at at least for me makes it a complete painting (laughs) so it's really kind of it's really kind of a dichotomy if you will okay back to the text let's see here so he was saying i would denounce the pure drawings as too thin and exposed too much quote-unquote art not enough nourishment and as an impossible direction with no future the next day or or day after back to doing the pure constructions and to attacking the other and so it went this tug of war for about two of for about two years in the end it was no contest the objects won In 1968, the forms which had been gathering, coming into focus, burst into being, burst into being, and they were, at first, the simple things of daily life, books, windows, cups, shoes. There was something inevitable about this, obvious even, obvious even, (laughs) sorry to get back into reading, it was as if the forms my father sought had been under his nose at home all the time there's that's i'm sorry for keep interrupting this can't even get through the first page but anyway i look around my studio space a lot and think i'm just going to build sculptures with what's laying around in here and then draw and paint those and i think i might still do that i might have mentioned that even in this storytelling earlier on in the reading somewhere but I still feel that way I just did it again I looked around I'm like you know I have a ton of things I could paint and draw just from my studio space alone back to the text and the pages moved as I was reading and looking around here okay here we are there are times in one's life he wrote poet Bill Berkson when you begin all over again From the beginning, a true turning over, a heave in my case. As if I have metamorphosed again, perhaps from something in flight into some kind of grub. They are so simple, these drawings. I don't know truly if they are any good or not. A line or two, a vertical, an arc, a banal shape. Yet to learn all over again is the only joy left to me. As always, Woodstock provided the necessary solitude and quiet as well as a fundamental vocabulary of images that began to appear in the paintings and drawings. My parents' house has always been filled with compelling objects, furnished piecemeal it was a dwelling of things, a gallery of objects, trouvés, trouvés, <laughs> sorry, my French is not great, objects, trouvés, each stone and lamp and shell and nest evoking some point in time, some transition in their lives. Most of this was my mother's doing. Everywhere you looked, there was there were odd talismans. Surreal hairballs in a glass box, actually a growth of some sort of seaweed, my mother tells me, from a beach in Tarquinia. A big weathered grey wooden key that had been a locksmith's sign, a cast iron sag beetle sorry, a cast iron stag beetle, whose horns were made for pulling off one's boots. A carved wood owl with glass eyes and a hinged head whose belly contained old keys. Philip shared my mother's taste for the odd and interesting artifact the object that would remain resonant or evoke a particular memory. I, I have some that's how I am too. <laughs> how silly is that? She would bring him pieces of driftwood which he would ca- could carve he would carve or paint or otherwise alter in some slight way to free the forms he saw there. A bit of driftwood with two painted eyes become became a sphinx, a snail's shell in a knot of wood turned into the eye of a bird, the broken branch, its beak. On their mantle sits a slim hand with tapered fingers that he carved and a wax tusk Toscanini style mustache shaped from a block of paraffin. For my mother, who'd grown up in the canal zone in Panama, the natural world was always fascinating. Her childhood seemed exotic and tropical to me. I always thought of her mother who loved animals as I had seen her in early photographs with lush palms in the background and an ocelot kitten or a puma cub draped across her shoulders like a fur wrap. Or I thought of the picture my grandfather had taken of my mother at 10, posed like a snake charmer, wrapped in a sarong with her flat chest painted like a dancing girl's. A six-foot-long boa constrictor twined around her shoulders and arms. My grandfather, Frederick McKim, was a gentle, soft-spoken man who wrote poetry in long, affectionate letters to his daughters. Some are still in a box in the bottom of my mother's file. Her father worked for the property. Requisition Bureau in the Canal Zone and was an amateur anthropologist whenever he could get away. He became known as an expert on Indian affairs and was often consulted by the Panamanian Indians in their dealings with the authorities. When he died my grandfather asked that that his ashes be sent to the Kuna Indians of the Bayano River to a remote area he called the Forbidden Land in a monograph published posthumously posthumously, posthumously <laughs> sorry, in a Swedish journal of anthropology Ethnologiska Studie Once my, when my mother came home from art school in Brooklyn her father had taken her for two weeks to live among the Kuna Indians on the islands of the Sambla atolls Atolls of the atolls off the coast of Cologne and down into Colombia. It was an experience that stayed with her all her life. And the photographs of this trip, the carved wood figurines, the sweet-smelling satiwawa wood, satiwawa wood, satiwawa. maybe that's how it is, the sweet-smelling satiwa wood, and all the other precious items of kuna jewelry and clothing, folded and packed away carefully in tissue paper, made it real for me too. When I was little, I loved the kuna beadwork. I would get all dressed up, dance around the room wearing a mola, a shirt with intricately sewn designs in reverse applique on the front and back festooned with long necklaces of fish vertebrae and monkey's teeth, latticework beaded bibs from which a row of cowrie shells hang, hung, and I particularly loved this one, a clattering, wreath-like shrin- shrinks of animal bone flutes, which I would tootle in accompaniment to my mo- to my father's old 78s of fat swaller and mead, lo- and mead Lux Lewis. Hmm. Nothing of my grandmother is on display beyond a photograph of her as a girl studying the violin in Dresden, which hangs above my mother's dresser. Though she lived until I was 12 and for a number of years I played her violin, I barely knew her. Once, when I was 10 or 11, my mother and I visited her in Oil City, Pennsylvania. I presented my grandmother with a birthday cake I had baked and put on a puppet show for her on another occasion when she visited Woodstock. Her gauntness and her age frightened me a little. As I remember, she was not at all the hefty, jolly-looking woman I knew from the pictures. My grandfather, who died when I was three, interested me far more. Though my mother rarely mentioned him, I understood without being told that father and daughter had been very close, and that it had and that it made her sad to talk about him. In addition to various molas and carved figurines, my mother kept a box of photographs of Panama. I looked through them perio- I looked through them periodically as I did through the boxes of shells and buttons and the scrapbooks my mother made of photographs from life. More taken, it seems to me now, with the exotic locales, I felt little sense of my own connection with what I saw. The Kuna Indian women with their beads and nose rings were far more intriguing to me than the pictures of my grandparents. Excuse me. But one photograph in particular both terrified and fascinated me. In it, a white man and a group of natives from the island of Toboga, off the Panamanian coast, are holding up a man's severed foot they have cut from the belly of a huge dead shark at their feet. The photograph must have been given to my grandfather, who in turn gave it to my mother. But in my early memories of this photo, it was my grandfather who had hunted down and shot the shark. I was surprised looking through this box of pictures recently to discover that he hadn't after all. The man holding the foot doesn't even look like Fred McKim. Yet I had seen pictures of my grandfather. I knew what he looked like. I must have combined my remote romantic image of the man, the idea of his leaving civilization to live among the Indians with some girlish fantasy of the great white hunter. As I write this, I'm sitting at my mother's old desk in the stone studio behind the house in Woodstock with its square window facing a grove of ash and maple saplings in its unused wood stove. This room has been a storage place these past few years. I've had to dust and sweep away the spider's webs and dead flies. There's a special musty feeling here, a fecund, friendly odor of mildew and rot that signals the ultimate return of things to their former state. Across the room, a sea of, excuse me, across the room, a set of shelves holds a row of birds' nests, some with a lining of mud, others fallen out of a tree that was being cut down. There's the nest a blue jay had built too close to one of the hammock hooks one summer, Because the jays had screamed at us so, we had finally taken the hammock down and stayed away until the babies left. On another shelf, a gathering of snails, shells, all sizes, mysteriously empty, and a assemblage of fossils my mother and I gathered over the years from the rocky shores of the Ashokan Reservoir. Nearby sits on the heavy trestle table beneath. All during my childhood... While my father was at work in his studio or away teaching down in the city, my mother and I went on expeditions to the Ashokan Reservoir, a lake 12 miles long and part of the river supply for New York City. I loved these treasure hunts. They were forays in my mother's imagination. Wait, sorry, they were, they were forays into my mother's imagination. I learned to see the world around me from these trips. From the land around the reservoir, we collected blue and white glass bottles, discovered in the old foundations of deserted houses lost in the woods. On its shores, we picked up bits of smoky flint that gave off a burning smell when struck together. Blocks of shale that crumbled in my hands like a Chinese puzzle. Fat conglomerates, we called pudding stones some rocks were so thick with fossils they were that they were layered like the uncut printed pages of a book they could be split at any point to reveal a new stratum of shell shadows like small trailing wings others revealed a single leaf or fern or fat tril- trilobite or Were chosen for their shape and size, their heft and smoothness in the hand, or the way they split like sliced bread. We always went home lugging stones, our pockets stuffed. These walks were intense experiences for me. All my senses were wide open. Sometimes, overwhelmed with the richness of it all, I would have to sit on the beach and close my eyes. Waiting for my mother, I'd assemble a palette of colored pimples and draw on the warm, flat glacial stones we call whalebacks, or skip flat stones and watch the ripples disturb the perfect reflection of the distant blue mountains. Though my mother was far down the beach, bent over still looking, I felt we were together. Soon we would amble in Soon she would amble in my direction, show me her booty, and admire my pebble drawing or the necklace of splashes I'd make for her in the still water. Another magical place of my childhood that we visited together was an old hotel on the top of Overlook Mountain. Originally constructed in in 1870, but abandoned after the crash of 1929. Overlook House had been one of the many palatial mountains mountain resorts in the Catskills. Now only in, now only the concrete outer shell remains, but when I was young the complete structure still stood in its in all its disarray. People were still climbing the steep 3-mile dirt road and pillaging the hotel for its plumbing fixtures and stone cornices, scaling the deep the seat, sorry. Scaling the steep slope to its summit became an annual adventure. We'd poke around the ruined grounds, finding fascinating things: old bottles and tiles, the long-toothed skull of a porcupine, and even once, and even once, the pale twin lobes of a rattlesnake's rattles, which made a delicious noise. I took this find home. I remember and hid it in my jewel box. The grand ballroom of the old hotel was littered with bits of decaying red velvet and fragments of mirrors which cast prisms of sunlight everywhere through a great gaping hole on the f- in the floor above the dozens of rooms on the upper floors lacked partitions we walked through walls from one end of the building to the other anchored with rusting guys excuse me anchored with rusting guy wires to the roof A wooden spire, church-like, rose four more stories. My mother always became worried when we got this high. She'd stand on the flat roof of the hotel, which was solid enough, pointing out the view. This is far enough, she always said. We don't need to go up there, do we? Then when I insisted, oh dear, and please be very careful... Trembling a little, avoiding the places where the wood had rotted away, I carefully climbed the spiral stair to the topmost airy with its diamond-shaped windows. And there, with the ridges of blue spreading to the horizon in every direction and the Hudson River, laid out like a wide silver ribbon, I was on top of the world. Every walk with my mother became an opportunity to collect something. Dried flowers thickened the pages of books, shelves were covered with dusty nests and shells, shoeboxes and dressers, and in the attic held overflow. Sometimes my mother and I still go foraging together. Two years ago, when we compared our day's haul after beachcombing in Boca Grande on the Gulf Coast of Florida, I realized how different our tastes had become. I had kept only perfect specimens, tulips, scallops, turkey wings, cowries, while she had chosen oddities, fragments of clamshells riddled with holes, a twisty worm shell, bits of sea glass, the gothic inner chambers of a whelk. These bits she glued to shirt cardboards. Oops, I have to go through the pages here bunch of images right here in the middle. These bits she glued to shirt cardboards, arranged in rows like her polished phrases. They seem to me like lines of poetry. And in the middle of this page is a poem, and I'll read it here. Alone with the moon. What about the small game and the dew falling? The dry leaves of autumn magnify the hop of the lightest bird. Why don't you lie down to pass the time? Why not sleep and never meet? Let the witnesses be distant mountains. Should I get back to the city to be with the guilty or stay with the tree unconscious of me? going to stop here the new paragraph goes back into her father's studio and i'm trying to see how many i'm going to stop here so i will put the rest of chapter seven on the next cast